Today we nervously commence a new series. And I say nervously because we're going over grounds that I've not personally covered before in a sermon series. And my reflections with people as I've been talking around the place indicates that we really haven't done a series on this. And uh, so it's, it's, there's been a lot of intrigue, a lot of interest because well, we just haven't heard it preached a lot. The new title series is titled, as the screen says, Be Holy. The scriptural journey inspiring this title is going to be the book of Leviticus. It's the center book of what we call the Pentateuch. It's what the Jews called the Torah, the law. A deeply committed time of study reveals a great beauty to be found in its pages. The writers of the Psalms considered the law of the Lord to be just that, a thing of beauty. It was to be meditated on and rejoiced over. And Psalm chapter 1 says that there's supposed to be delight coming from our interaction with it. Yet if you ask a modern Christian what they find in Leviticus, you might get an answer a little bit less enthusiastic than that. In my teen years, when my ADHD was kicking in and sleep was a problem, I was interacting with different people and uh, some of the older members of my church goes, yeah, you having trouble sleeping, Cam? And I'm saying, yep. He goes, read Leviticus. So I was even discipled <laughs> to believe that what we're about to explore was nothing more than a good sedative. And I was even a bit shocked when I felt the Lord prompted me to look at preaching this. I've actually read Leviticus many times and have remained awake to tell the story. But it wasn't something I was falling over myself to preach on either. But in the last 12 months, I've seen a more intense interaction with this particular book, particularly in a secular setting. But sadly, only selective parts without seeing the value of the whole. And I found a lot of Christians not knowing how to answer this properly when the world has been bringing this up. Chapter 18 had a really good workout over the same-sex marriage debate. But the overall idea of being a holy people just didn't get across. I found in recent months that we... I've spoken to a lot of Christians all around the country... And have found that we don't really know how to interact with these pages, particularly the more, the less concrete parts, the lesser known parts. And I'm now seeing that there's a richness that believers are missing out on in a big way here. So today we're going to start from the beginning. Uh, so Leviticus 1 is where we're going to be and we'll briefly cover that in a moment. But first, I want to create a line of thought around this that will hopefully help us interact with this stuff as modern Christians. Bit of a backstory. And to do that, we need to ponder the constant story of God's interaction with mankind as told in the law up to this point. Genesis chapter 1 to 3 tells us that God made mankind in his own image. He placed them in an environment where they would flourish and be fruitful. He prescribed them rest so that they could have space to replenish, reflect and worship. 
and he equipped and empowered them to be agents of his rule over the earth. And he placed himself at the closest proximity to them. Genesis 3 tells of his habit of walking in the cool of the day, coming alongside man and interacting at close quarters. This was man knowing God's heart, his personality, his desires, his plans, his purposes, his values, and being agents of those things on the earth. Now, of course, this was until the serpent, until the fall, until the rejection from the garden, where all this was possible. Then we fast forward a few generations and nine chapters in Genesis. And we see God starting the process again. And this time we see another couple involved. This time it's Abraham and Sarah. He raises up a people out of them. And we know the story. They end up through various circumstances over in Egypt. There they become a pretty decent-sized population, but in time they also become slaves. Most of us know the story. The slavery gets bad, the people cry out, the burning bush, the Lord raising up Moses to lead them out of their predicament. There's a fair bit of intense to and fro between Pharaoh and, and Moses and the Lord and all that stuff, but eventually Israel is able to leave the nation where they've been slaves. They've crossed the Red Sea, they've been delivered from Egypt's military might in the process. They've found themselves in a wilderness area, wondering what their next steps are, essentially. And they've not been easy for Moses to lead in this time either. Then there's the massive time up on Mount Sinai where God establishes a new covenant with them and issues the law. And this is headlined by the Ten Commandments. And up on the mountain in that setting, the blueprint for a tent is also given to Moses, which would be a place where the people would interact with God. It is known to us in the scriptures as the tabernacle. The rest of Exodus is dedicated to telling how it's built. Here's an artist's rendition of the finished product. I was kind of joking with people. It looks like, when you look at the cloud formation, it's like Star Wars meets Independence Day or something like that. It's <laughs> Nothing in the images that you find online does this place justice. It's a thing of beauty in the middle of the desert. It sits right in the middle of the people and they set themselves up tribe by tribe around it. With this going on, there's miraculous provision with food and water. There is divine assistance against invading or overly interested outside armies. And there is God right there in the middle of a people again. And suddenly the plans of God separating a pe a people for his purposes begins to emerge once again. The law is given to clearly state how this people is to conduct itself and how it is to demonstrate the rule of God their king. It anticipates the life they will lead when they inherit the land they've been promised. But they are being trained to live that way before they get there. 
The tabernacle is built with all the trimmings of a palace because worship is centred on the idea of coming before God as their sovereign and holy covenant king. Israel is sitting between redemption from slavery and inheritance of the promised land. They are now beginning to live life as a sovereign God's redeemed covenant people. And as we come to Leviticus 1, we do this with the understanding that the Jews are just one year into the wilderness journey. They're just learning the ropes about what this actually looks like. Hopefully after we've spoke, everything we've spoken about in the last year or so, you might be able to join the dots on how our own journey might mirror that. Between redemption, between the, uh, redemption and the promise. I want to give a couple of quick tips before, that we need to grab before we start reading all this. Before we start reading Leviticus, a couple of little glossary of terms for you. First up, there's this thing out there called a holiness spectrum. You've got different levels of what are considered holiness and they're used a lot in the passages here. Most holy, anything dealing directly with or offered to God. That's also the state that the high priest had to sort of sit in. He got simply holy. And that's the general state of the priesthood. That's, where, that's the position they're supposed to be in, in their life. Then you got clean. This is the desired general state of the Jews coming to worship. This is how Jews had to go through ritual to become clean. Also, this is the way of life for a Levite. Unclean. The camp they actually lived in, anything outside of the tabernacle, was considered this way due to the minor impurities all around it. You couldn't stay, you lived in this position where you were, you know, you know, things were just unclean. Things had to be ceremonially and ritually cleansed before they came into anything to do with God. And then you got very unclean, anything pertaining to outside the camp. If, something, if there's something that says, yeah, you'll bury that out or throw that outside the camp, it's not good stuff. When you were to cast people out of the camp, when you were to, even there were some punishments that involved being outside the camp. But also there were extended things, um, extended rites of purification in there too that would come under this very unclean idea as well. So we'll throw those around a fair bit and we'll do our best to carefully walk through them. And, uh, but we'll also do it deliberately. Because as I said in the Facebook post, we really don't know, have the right idea of what the New Testament calls holiness and purity until we learn it in the law of the Lord. And Leviticus gives us a very clear picture of that. The central verse of Leviticus is found in 19 verse 2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I... The Lord your God am holy. Think about that. You are my people, therefore you are to reflect who I am. Holiness is a big deal in Leviticus because it's a big deal with God. And it continues to be a big deal among his covenant people no matter what generation we're talking about, old, new, whatever. 
Therefore, the title of this series reflects this verse and it calls us to look at all that we cover in light of this outcome. How do I be holy in all that I do as a believer today? And my last tip for the trip is this, that people actually, there are people out there that fold their arms about now going, I don't really need to interact with this Old Testament stuff. And frankly, yes, you do. It takes up two-thirds of the book you hold for a reason. There's a reason God said every single thing in it. It would be foolish to fob off everything written simply because we don't immediately think of it as applicable in our setting. So here's a bit of a way to kind of wade our way through this, all right? One, identify what it meant to the, and, and how it was practiced at the time. Understand that in that setting there was a very specific way that was doing that and there was an environment where it would, would have been a natural thing to do. That they had a context of life that they understood certain practices to fall into because it was consistent with other things going on around them. Second, we identify what is different between them and us. Think of culture, think of practicalities, think of life beyond simply being a Jew and, uh, and we can sort of ponder what are the different things. Three, we see if we can find a universal principle in what you're reading. All right, we haven't even got to the New Testament yet. But we ask ourselves, why did God say these things? Why is God making, is, why is God prescribing things? Why is God saying things? Why is he commanding a way to live? What is he wanting to get across here? Then we look at it in light of the, Old, of the New Testament. How does Jesus complete the law? How do some things still stand? How does the scriptures interact with the idea of holiness and purity? And finally, we look for ways to apply the principle as a modern Gentile Christian. All right, so we go through a journey. We don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. But also we have a clear structure on how we interact with this sort of stuff because the average believer doesn't know how to do this or how to properly explain this to the world around us. And, and we've been often accused in the last 12 months, uh, the church, not, not us, but the church, of picking and choosing stuff from the Old Testament to suit our agendas and stuff like that. But having a grasp on the principles behind all this is actually a really helpful thing. So we sort of clear as mud so far. <laughs> awesome. Let's get into some scripture. Hopefully that all makes sense. And there's a space in the um, Bible app um, thing there that I've actually write those things down as you go. Um, that's the idea there. Anyway, let's look at some scripture. And um, I'm going to read the last part of Exodus 40, which sets the scene and creates a bit of a, a, a flow of the story here. So we'll just read this together. Then you can catch up with me in snippets of Leviticus 1 and 2. So we'll start at Exodus 40, verse 34 to 38, and roll, and roll our way through that way. So here we go. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. 
So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Leviticus 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting and said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the bull, young bull, before the Lord and then Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the, on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all, all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. We go over to chapter 2 now. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priests shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion to the, on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. And finally, the last three verses. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your Lord out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Wow. The context of this passage is provided in the end of Exodus. The tabernacle is built, it's ready to function. And the glory of the Lord is tangibly and powerfully present right there in the middle of the camp with a whole nation assembled around him and it is an unambiguous thing. The whole nation is able to see the glory of God. His presence is there for all to see which is unlike the pagan people groups all around them. The God of their nation is present and active Nobody among the Jews are being left wondering right now. Is God there? Yes, he is, very clearly. Look at the cloud, look at the pillar. Look at the lightsaber. (laughs) And in that setting, we read that Moses is summoned by the Holy Covenant King once again. And the instructions from God at this time to the people opens with a phrase, when anyone comes to offer. Sacrifice was simply in that time a known element of worship, no matter what faith walk you came from. Noah did it after the flood. Abraham knew it as a devotional practice, as did Job, who may have lived well before all this, according to some of the scholars. So God is anticipating that the Jews are going to want to get near to him. 
and come before him in his holy presence. Not out of superstitious fear or to appease him, but out of reverence, out of awe, and out of thankfulness, and out of a desire for relationship and interaction with him. He is there among his people and he's inviting the nation to get close. And in the first two chapters, we see varying levels of offerings being suggested as they do that. All designed in some way to allow people of all walks of life to be able to participate. Chapter 1 speaks of animals being bought. And although we only read a bit about bulls here, we also see provision for other beasts. We've got sheep in there. We've even got birds in there, pigeons, doves. And there are grain offerings in chapter 2 with specific conditions about how these things would be brought depending on how they were prepared. It needs to be noted at this point of the book that the offerings spoken of here don't seem to have a purpose just yet. We will have a purpose for some of the offerings coming up. The next week we'll begin to look at this. But at the moment, we're talking simply about coming to their holy covenant king in worship. Just, no matter what it is, I'm coming to where God is and I'm not coming empty-handed. I have to bring something and I have to do something to be part of this worship practice. God is assuming that since he is present, that his people are going to want to do this. No one would be blasé going, I'm going to stay as far away from that cloud as possible. God is assuming the complete opposite, that everyone who can see the cloud, everyone who can see the pillar of fire at night, anyone who can see the glory of God emanating from that tent, is both welcome and wanting to get near it. And as you wanted to do this, you would be giving careful thought as to how you went about doing it. All of this is assumed simply because God is present. This is why we have the phrase, when, not if, you come. But since God is their sovereign, and they are subjects according to his holy standard, the when was to be treated with the attention it truly deserved. God's going, come one, come all, come. But at the same time, that's held in tension with, do it on my terms. And God gives Israel clear instructions about the manner in which they came to simply worship him. First, anything they offered was to be of the best quality they could achieve. Animals were to have no blemishes. This wasn't your opportunity to offload the injured or the incomplete ones that you deemed useless to your own needs. Yeah, it's not going to make much money in the stock market. I can't take it to the, to the, to the guys down there. It's not going to get much per kilo. Let's take it to God. Oh, this one's got a gammy leg. Yeah, we'll just drag that one in. God, my mind. None of that was on the cards. 
It's interesting they had to be male. This is said by some to be God's concession to the people because the females were the ones you wanted to keep for breeding and for, for milk. So God was meeting the people halfway in this. He wasn't going, I'm taking your livelihood. But he was saying, I still want your best. The grain was to be the fine kind, the semolina kind. The best part of the grain made into the products you bring. The preparation of anything cooked had to be free of impurities like yeast, free of honey, which was a common ingredient in pagan worship. And it had to have salt in it because this was a symbol of, one, removing impurity, two, was a symbol of hospitality, and finally, it was definitely a symbol of covenant. And as a result of this attention to detail, your act of worship would actually have an expression outside of that one interaction. It would bring about a constantly reflective attitude toward God in all that you did through the week. Think about this for a minute. It would take days to locate that perfect animal in your care. And time to separate that thing. And make sure it stayed the best of your flock. You would have protected everything else from it. It would take time to lovingly prepare the grain offerings and ensure the right ingredients were involved and that you could reflect on why that was. It would involve others in this process as they joined with you in getting it all together. So there's a community aspect to it too. There will be the best quality. It will be more than momentary. It will be a week-long expression of worship every day of the week. And it involved your full participation. You couldn't just show up one Saturday, give God a cursory wave, drop some stuff at the barbecue and let the priest serve all your needs. Neither simply could you offer it in your backyard and watch a sermon on TV. There was no environment holy enough outside of the tabernacle to offer something that was pleasing to God. The environment you lived in was unclean. Impurities everywhere, whether you intended it or not. And so to go to God and go, you know what, it's not holy ground, it's not clean, but here you go, was not the way God's people were to be. God states here that you would need to go to the place prepared for these offerings. Because the world around them was on the wrong end of the holiness spectrum for that. And instead they will be stopped at the door by the priest. And their offering will be carefully inspected. Then the person offering it would lay their hands on it. At the very least a statement of ownership. Yep, this is mine, I'm accountable for it. 
but more likely a statement of allowing their offering to be made to face what they really should do in God's presence. Because God states here that it will be accepted on their behalf to make atonement. The worshipper killed the animal. They, the other image of putting your hands on it was to hold the thing down. The worshipper skinned it. The worshipper cut it up and washed it down. The organs would have no refuse or impurity in them before being offered. Offered. The legs will be washed to keep impure things away from the altar. That animal had been stepping in some pretty awful stuff between you know, the house and the temp- tabernacle. Everything had to be clean and the worshipper did it because the priest was already in, that ho- already in that holy state. He wasn't allowed to touch it until it was clean. And then it would be handed over. See, there was no space for passive observation in the worship process when you came before the Holy Covenant King. Everything the worshipper did was intensely reflective over an extended period of time. It was deeply symbolic. It was carefully prepared. It was done with full engagement. It was done with full reverence and attention to detail in line with what they knew would be pleasing to the person receiving it. And when done right, it would be accepted. At this time I'm going to close. But I want to do a bit of a quick reflection on this. Sacrifice in worship was much better understood then than it is now. If we started slaughtering animals round about now, we'd be in a lot of legal trouble pretty quickly. Alright, so we can easily see that it doesn't quite fit with what we do now. Society's different. But more than keeping the RSPCA off our backs... We also know that such sacrifices and atonement requirements are complete in the work of Christ. We didn't stick our hand on a beast because man put his hands on the Son of God. Today we are accepted because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can come boldly to God's throne because of this. We're only getting started with the series and I'm looking forward to fleshing that particular part out and it will be pretty soon. Where does Jesus, how does the sacrificial system point to Jesus? Beyond that, the concept of sacrifice still has an expression in modern Western life. We still have a capacity to perform it in some settings. It still gets recognised, celebrated and rewarded in today's thinking particularly amongst those in military and emergency services. Sacrifice as a concept is not completely beyond us. 
And it's not completely beyond us in Christ either. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that through Christ to continually offer a sacrifice of praise. If that's the case, then how might that word sacrifice be thought of now that we have a standard in what we've explored today? There's a phrase in this passage that I reckon needs some attention. When you come. It's assumed that believers want to be near God when he makes his presence felt. That we won't run and hide, but we'll come front and center. It's assumed that when the king takes up residence among his people, then the subjects want to bask in that and enjoy his blessings and presence and be in his holy community. It's also assumed that we will want to take up and be active agents of the king's agenda. And all of that can be summed up as a life of worship. The living sacrifice type of thing that Romans 12 speaks of. The stuff that Paul calls reasonable. And there is nothing passive about it in any way. Worship has an expression through the whole week. With constant regard for the standard of our king being on our minds. It is engaged and active when it is expressed in ritual and in community. And worship is supposed to be an offering of our very best. Of our time. Our substance, our imagination, our participation. The best of our attitude and the best of our reference. The best of anything that we sacrifice. Does God get our best? When we think of the act of coming before the Lord in Leviticus... How does that speak into the way we come before the Lord today? If God is all holy and this worship anticipates coming front and center between, before a holy God, how does this speak into our worship of our holy God too? I'm going to leave it there. I'll invite the band up. Would you bow your heads? Let's reflect just on that at this time.